Well, Americans like options. We like choice. It's built into our very fabric. We even tie it to freedom. Many can remember the hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, special orders don't upset us jingle that Burger King introduced back in the 1970s, actually. The jingle was aimed at cutting into McDonald's Big Mac market, which had successfully introduced the to all beef patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. In response, Burger King focused on the fact that we like our choices so you can have it your way. As I recall, they later said there were some 256 ways to order the Whopper, and yet most of you order it the same way every time. Sociology professor Barry Schwartz published a book a few years ago titled The Paradox of Choice. The next year, he did a TED Talk on the subject of his book in Oxford, England. In the talk, he said this, the official dogma of all Western industrial societies, that includes us, runs like this. If we are interested in maximizing the welfare of our citizens, the way to do that is to maximize individual freedom. Welfare, individual freedom. The reason for this is freedom is in and of itself good, valuable, worthwhile, essential to, human, uh, to being human. Be- Because if people have freedom, then each of us can act on our own to maximize our welfare, and no one has to decide on our behalf. The way to maximize, here's the conclusion, the way to maximize freedom is to maximize choice. From that, Schwartz suggests in his book, we end up with lots of options. We like options. It's part of our freedom. And so, in his book, he points out the average grocery store has 285 varieties of cookies, 85 choices of juices, 95 varieties of chips, 230 soups, 120 different pasta sauces, 275 varieties of cereals. And no matter which one you bring home, the kids always want the other one. 175 kinds of tea bags, 100 different kinds of detergent. Schwartz says the average uh, grocery store carries about 30,000 items, introducing 20,000 new items every year. The toothpaste aisle, I said aisle, makes you dizzy. Someone has coined it consumer vertigo because we like our options. We even like our options in Christianity. For example, go to the local Christian bookstore or christianbooks.com, you've got options. How many different Bibles can there possibly be? There are children's Bibles teen Bibles, student Bibles, men's Bibles, women's Bibles, family Bibles, reference Bibles, study Bibles, devotional Bibles, small print, large print, pocket size, thin line, paperback, hardback, bonded leather, genuine leather, interlinears, parallel Bibles, topical Bibles, one-year Bibles, chronological Bibles, and so on. And we haven't even yet gotten to all of the translations, KJV, 
ASV, NIV, ESV, NAS, RSV, NLT, NET, New King James, NEB, the Phillips, etc., etc. Way too many to count. You own several of them because we are Christians and we like options. We even like our options when it comes to church, which is why we have over 45,000 Christian denominations. Reformers never intended that. We had about five new denominations per week. That's why we have over 50 evangelical options in Watauga County alone. How many churches do we really need? According to Dawn Ministries, D-A-W-N, Discipling a Whole Nation, they're into church saturation. They suggest that a town or a city or an area reaches church saturation when you have one church per thousand people. We are at church saturation, and yet there has been a new church plant in the area every year that I have been in Boone, 23 years and counting. I can tell you two or three that have started within the last year or two. Not not, not that that's bad, but we like our options. And some of us pick our churches like we pick a new car. I mean, I like the options, the color, the size, the people, the programs, programs for me, programs for my kids, the music, (laughs) don't get me started, the preaching, the, the Sunday school classes, the service schedules, and eventually I might even consider doctrine. We're Americans, we like options. Some of us even trade in our churches like we trade in our cars. If this one wears out or something newer or better comes along, then I'll trade in the old one. Or perhaps I might still drive the old one every once in a while and try out some of the newer ones and kind of jump from place to place, you know, take them for a test drive as if we are consumers instead of fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And in our consumer-driven culture, Western culture, where marketing is a multi-billion dollar industry, some of you are marketing majors, good choice, the Church of Jesus Christ has suffered. We were in a study of Second Peter a few weeks ago, August 2nd actually, Uh, We had not taken the Lord's Supper in several months, and so I decided to take a break and teach on communion. So also, one week from today, as you heard in the announcements, we will observe the second ordinance of the church, which we have not been able to observe for several months now. Something about filling a, 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 a pool in this COVID season sounds a little unsanitary. So we're going to do it a week from today in a river so that we don't have to worry about, well, unless you're downstream. (laughs) But I want to talk to you today about baptism. And my hope is that some of you as followers of Christ who have not yet been baptized will do so. You see, in this time of pandemic, I've observed, observed the necessity of elevating the importance of the local church, of this church. 
can define the church as a group of ones called out. That's what the word in the Greek means, ekklesia, called out ones, called out of this present evil age to be followers of Christ, to assemble... (laughs) to assemble together for specific purposes like discipleship and worship and prayer and service and the like. And from the Reformation on, some consistencies of our understanding of the church began to develop. Most agree, uh, began to agree that a local church is a group of people who assemble, who are committed to the gospel rightly taught and where the ordinances, of which there are not seven but two, the ordinances are rightly administered. So having looked at the Lord's Supper, I want us to look at baptism today. By the way, we refer to these as ordinances in that Jesus ordained or Jesus instituted these practices. Now, the purpose of my introduction regarding options As I jump into this topic on baptism is this, baptism too has become quite optional in the church, not just in form. I mean, do we sprinkle, do we pour, do we immerse, do we baptize infants or do we baptize believers or converts, do we baptize forward or backward? Yes, there's actually a discussion about that. Do we baptize in the name of Jesus or in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Do we baptize people or do people baptize themselves, just kind of fill in the bathtub at home? Or do pastors or priests baptize or can anyone baptize? Do do we uh, baptize at a special service or do we baptize at our Sunday morning worship gatherings that we mistakenly call church? Do we baptize in a baptistry or do we baptize in the river? The Didache has some things to say about that. I'll talk about some of those options through our time together this morning, but that's not really what I'm talking about when I talk about options in baptism. I'm talking about whether to be baptized has become, for some, a choice, an option. I might get to it one day. And yet, Jesus' last words to His disciples in the Gospel of Matthew, right before He left and returned to heaven, were these, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, all the ethnos, all the people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. We're familiar with that verse. We call it the Great Commission, and most believers, especially evangelical ones, would say that they are all about the Great Commission, which is great. But are we? You should know the main verb in that sentence, main verb, is to make disciples. It's our job to see people become followers of Jesus with us. That's really what our mission statement at Alliance is. It's just a a summation of the great commission. We are called by the grace of God for the glory of God to become ourselves and to multiply ourselves See other people become fully devoted followers of Jesus with us. Well, what's a fully devoted followers? A follower. Now, as I suggested, the main verb of the Great Commission is to make disciples. And it's supported by three ING words that we call participles. 
There is a sense in which we can measure our success in fulfilling the Great Commission by these three participles. The first of the three is go. It has carry some imperatival force. In other words, we are supposed to, he's telling us to go, but, but really, literally, it's in going or in your going. Take the message of the gospel with you wherever you go to make disciples of the nations, to include people around us. Second participle is baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Seems to answer that one question. Third participle is teaching them all of the things that Jesus commanded. Well, actually, I, it's not exactly right. I left out a couple of key words. Teaching them to observe, to observe all that Jesus commanded. So here are the measures to determine if we're doing the Great Commission. It's not just getting people to pray a prayer. Are we telling people about Jesus? Are we seeing them become believers? Are we seeing them be baptized? And are we seeing them observe or obey His teaching? That, that would make us successful in the Great Commission. Now, this Great Commission is not a suggestion. It's imperative. It's a command. Go. Tell them about Jesus. As they believe, baptize them. Teach them to observe. This is the clearest definition of what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus. It is our job description. We don't have the authority to rewrite our job description. Here it is. Think of it this way. Going signifies presence. We must go to where the people are. That's exactly what Jesus did when He came from heaven to earth. More than that, when He went to where the people were. Not only around the world, although it includes that, but for us next door, across the street, to the next office cubicle, to the person sitting in the decks next to us, or in the same dorm room. We call this going, by the way, to where the people are. We call this pre-evangelism. It requires presence, pre-evangelism. Baptizing signifies proclamation or persuading. It is sharing the claims of Christ verbally. No one will ever become a Christian because you're a good person. It is verbally sharing the claims of Christ with people who need to hear and see them converted, confessing faith in Jesus Christ. We call that evangelism. And teaching signifies perfecting, maturing, growing in your faith. Again, it's not enough to just see them pray a prayer, although that is critically important. We then want to see them become with us fully devoted followers. We could call that post-evangelism, pre-evangelism, evangelism, post-evangelism. This command is why, by the way, a few days later after Matthew 28, on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection, Peter preached his first message. Some call it the first message of the Christian church. The Feast of Pentecost was one of those annual festivals which gathered Jews from literally around the world. While Jewish in ethnicity, they were of different nationalities, which means they spoke different languages. 
But on that particular day, the Holy Spirit came and filled the disciples, just as Jesus had promised. And the disciples spoke in other tongues, languages, gathering a crowd from throughout Jerusalem. And when they arrived, each heard the wonders of God in their own language. And it was, it was at this point, hey, we're with the people, right? They've gathered At this point, Peter preached the gospel very clearly. Read the first message. Acts chapter 2, he preaches the death and resurrection of Jesus. He finished the message with these great words, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Wow. Those who heard it were pierced to the heart, we read, and they said, we hear you. We recognize that Jesus is, was the Christ, and we crucified him. We believe that he was raised from the dead. What should we do? And Peter, remembering the command of Jesus from just 10 days before, said, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter, you see, understood the Great Commission did the Great Commission, once they repent, baptize them. And by the way, we see 3,000 people believed and were baptized. Don't miss it. That same day. Doesn't, doesn't seem particularly optional. We'll talk about that more in a moment. So, what is this baptism? The Greek word is baptizo, and the word literally means, this is what it means, it means to plunge or to dip or to immerse. For, for example, the word was used of, in, the, in the regular conversation of the day. You probably did, haven't, didn't use that word this week in your conversations at work or school or whatever, but it was a regular word back then. In fact, it was used in this way. One of my favorite examples, if you were a person who sold clothing, you would get a bolt I know you're impressed that I know what a bolt is. You would get a bolt of cloth, of white cloth, and you don't, not everybody wants to wear white, and so you would dye it in the green or the red or the purple or the blue dye. And the word that was used as you would dip or immerse or plunge the cloth into the dye is bad. You would baptize the cloth. Don't miss it. You would go in one color and you would come out another. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow, you see. It's a great word. So while I do not think that this is anything to fall on our swords about, I do believe the practice is best observed by immersion, since that's what the word means, when you baptize someone, you dip or plunge them into water. The New Testament seems to accept this understanding. For example, when people were being baptized by John the Baptist, we read in Mark chapter 1 that they were being baptized in the Jordan River. Later in that same chapter, we read that when Jesus was baptized, as he was coming up out of the water, the Spirit of God is seen descending on, the, on him in the form of a dove. In John chapter 4, we read John was baptizing in Enon because there was much Water there, kind of an interesting choice of words. And in Acts chapter 8, when Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, we read that they both went down into the water. So, uh, both the meaning of the word and the clearest practice in the New Testament was that of immersion. Again, I'm not going to follow my sword about it, uh, but, but, it's, but it seems clear. This, by the way, is the how, some call it the mode of baptism. 
But we haven't yet answered the question, what is baptism? That is, what does it do besides get you wet? When we compare various passages of Scripture which speak of the practice, we arrive at the following definition. Lots of words on the screen. Ready? Baptism is an external expression demonstrating an inward or internal reality of faith. Baptism is administered to those who have made a credible or believable profession of faith in Jesus Christ. That's important. It symbolizes a person's identification with Christ in His death burial and resurrection, and of their own dying to themselves, being buried with Jesus and raised to walk in newness of life in Christ. It symbolizes our sins being washed away and beginning, if you will, the Christian life. Again, I know lots of words, but baptism is an incredibly, incredibly rich symbol, maybe not as optional as we make it. Share some passages with you that demonstrate these ideas. First in Colossians chapter 2, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. By the way, this is another reason that baptism is by immersion as a symbol that depicts being buried with Christ and being raised with him. Romans chapter 6 kind of says the same thing. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Meganoita, may it never be. How shall we who, are, who died in sin, uh, 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 died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all uh, uh, of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Galatians chapter 3 speaks of us who have been baptized, having clothed ourselves all around with Jesus Christ. Let me take just a quick aside and make something perfectly clear. Baptism is not something you do in order to be saved, but it is an act of obedience by which you, an act of obedience, don't miss those words, by which you demonstrate or proclaim that you have been saved. It is a, a picture of that which has already transpired in your life. Now, there are those within Christendom who say that baptism is necessary for salvation, that it in and of itself is redemptive, ex opere operato are the words. It is a means of saving grace. That's not what the Scripture teaches. Rather, it is for those who have already professed faith and know Jesus as Savior. Please notice Baptism in the New Testament is always, without exception, carried out, administered to believers, which is why we call it believers or credo baptism. We've talked about the how, we've talked about immersion, we've talked about what, identifying with Christ, and now we talk about the who. It is for those who have made a credible profession of faith. Acts chapter 2, again, Peter preaching, those who received Peter's words, those who received Peter's words were baptized. Acts 8, Philip the eunuch 
It says people were being baptized when they believed Philip's message, specifically the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism, I want to say this as clearly as I can, is for believers, which means, again, baptism is not um, administered in order to make you a Christian, but to demonstrate that you already are a Christian, which also means this. I want to say this gently, but I want to say this clearly. Baptism in the New Testament was always carried out on believers, not on infants. I need to talk about this just a bit. Since many practice infant baptisms, not to cast dispersion on those who do. In fact, perhaps many of you were baptized as as infants. It's called paedo-baptism. To that, I would graciously say, we do not have one clear example of infant baptism in the New Testament. In fact, the Scripture goes out of its way to demonstrate that baptism always follows faith. There are a few arguments for infant baptism that I want to address. First, some say, and just so you know, this feels a little, I know this feels a little bit like a lecture this morning. Hang with me. This is incredibly important. Some say household baptism in the New Testament is an indication of infant baptism, although that's a bit of an argument from silence because just because a household is baptized doesn't mean that there were infants in the bath. It doesn't say infants. It says household. It's an argument from silence, but... Uh, that is when the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 or Stephanus in Acts chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter 1 were baptized, their households were baptized as well, and that is absolutely true. Well, let's look closely, for example, at Acts chapter 16. And after that, he, that is the Philippian jailer, brought them, that is Paul and Silas, out, and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they, and they said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household. Stop right there. Be- believing in the Lord Jesus was required not only for the jailer, but for his household. The jailer believing did not save his household. Believing in Jesus was required of those in his household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all those who were together to those, all those who were in his house. And he took them that very night, uh, that very hour of the night and washed their wounds and washed Paul and Silas' wounds. And immediately he, the jailer, was baptized and all his household. There you go. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with his whole household. We see there, when we go to Acts chapter 16 and we see household baptism, the reason his household was baptized is because they, with the jailer, also believed. 
whole household was baptized because they believed. We won't take the time to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but it speaks of the household of Stephanus being baptized. But in 1 Corinthians 16, that's chapter 1, last chapter of the book, chapter 16 speaks of Stephanus' household devoting themselves to the ministry of the saints. The point these texts go out of their way to indicate is that households, these households were old enough to believe and hear and to serve and therefore old enough to be baptized. The second argument for infant baptism is this. New Testament baptism, it is said, replaces Old Testament circumcision. Baptism, again suggested, is the sign or symbol of entering into the new covenant family. I I personally like that. I have no problem with it per se, but there is no passage which says baptism replaces circumcision. And there is only one passage that links the two rather loosely. It's in Colossians chapter 2. We're looking at verse 12, but let's look at verses 11 and 12. And in Him, Jesus, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, it's not physical circumcision. It is spiritual circumcision. Paul said this in Romans chapter 2. It is not those who are children of Abraham who have been physically circumcised, but those who have been circumcised of heart, you see, spiritual circumcision. In the removal of the body of the flesh by circumcision of Christ, having been buried. How did this happen? Having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised up with Him. Don't miss the words, through faith. And the working of God who raised him from the dead. Yes, the word circumcision and baptism are used in successive verses, but verse 11 doesn't speak of physical circumcision. It speaks of spiritual circumcision. And please note the key words in verse 12, bury with him in baptism baptism by which you were raised up with him through faith. Once again, we see that faith is a prerequisite for baptism. To this idea of baptism being a sign of entering the new covenant, I would say this. Circumcision was a physical act demonstrating that a child, actually a boy, was born into a physical family, an Israelite family. Faith was not necessary. Baptism is a spiritual act demonstrating that someone has been born spiritually. We call it being born again into a spiritual family. Again, I don't have a problem with seeing it as a sign or symbol of being added to a spiritual family called the Church of Jesus Christ, but it re- does require that you have, in fact, been added through faith. You've believed. Finally, on the issue of Beto baptism, some say, well, of course, there was only believer's baptism in the New Testament because the practice was brand new. But in later generations, as believers had children, they practiced infant baptism. I would point out two issues with that. First, the New Testament was written uh, uh, over a period of several decades. Certainly, believers had children during that time, and yet not one time in this several-decade period of time in which the New Testament was written, not one time do we have the practice of infant baptism observed in the New Testament. And second, second challenge. In the Old Testament, when circumcision was instituted, it too was new. And children and adults were circumcised, that's true. Subsequently, any children or foreigners who who came into the covenant family were circumcised. But there were clear instructions given to do so. So clear that it was told what day. You circumcise those boys, again boys, on the eighth day. 
Very clear, no ambiguity. If God, my question, if God intended for us to baptize children, don't you think clear instruction would have been given? If baptism replaces circumcision, don't you think the New Testament somewhere would have said so? And don't you think someone would have baptized a baby unambiguously somewhere in the New Testament? not there. In fact, the opposite is there. It's, it's believers who are baptized. Point is this, both the meaning of the practice, identifying with Christ, by faith with Christ, and the observance of the practice of the New Testament clearly points to believers' baptism. You say, well, what, what if I was baptized as an infant? Do I need to be baptized Again, very graciously, I would say, biblically speaking, yes. In order to fulfill the New Testament ordinance as a believer, you should be baptized at the risk of being called an Anabaptist, which is a rebaptizer. And that particular time when people were saying you need to be baptized as a believer, they took some of those who were saying that and said, we'll baptize you again, and they tied them to a pole and dunked them in the river and left them till they drowned. Brings me to my conclusion. It's interesting to note in the New Testament when people came to faith in Jesus Christ, they were baptized most often at that time the very same day did, did, did not seem very optional. We began a practice today that I believe that is outside the norm of the New Testament by observing baptism in most cases indefinitely after conversion. In that sense, I would suggest we've made, by doing so, we've made baptism optional. Believers eventually get around to it some, but not all. Some of you are believers and you've never been baptized. And I want to say very lovingly, you need to be. It's an act of obedience. Jesus said to do it. The early church practiced it. It's a public declaration of your faith. Let me also say this, being baptized in this church, if you choose to be baptized, it doesn't make you a member of this local church. I can't find that in the New Testament. It does symbolize your entrance into the body of Christ, the universal church of Jesus Christ, which is why we baptize publicly, um, but it's not an issue of membership. Now, some of you say, well, what about my children? They've made a profession of faith. Should I let them be baptized? I, I want you to know that I have personally wrestled with this question. But, but I've, I've come to this. If a child understands enough to know the gospel, that is, they know that they are sinners, they, they, they know that, that Jesus, the Son of God and God in the flesh, died for them and was raised again the third day, then they know enough to be baptized. You say, but they don't always, always act like a Christian. Neither do you. What if they're not really Christians yet? then they'll just get wet. 
They, they can always be baptized again if they truly uh, come to faith in Christ. The point is this. Jesus commanded his followers to be baptized. And it's a great way, I would add this, it's a great way to tie their conversion to a physical act of proclamation. In the New Testament, people who became followers of Jesus were immediately baptized. It wasn't optional. In fact, I often meet with people and they'll say something like this. I was, I was saved when I was 12. And I say, well, how old are you now? And I'm 32. And I say, okay, well, I'm going to hold you under one minute for every year since you've been saved. <laughs> Kidding. Again, some of you need to be baptized. Now, here's my concern. I've given a lecture on the topic of baptism. Sounds to me, even to me, as I've done this. I'm giving this sterile command, be baptized because Jesus said so in the early church practices. So be baptized. I don't want to, I do not want to come across that way. Rather, I want you to hear this. Jesus, the very Son of God, left heaven's glory, emptied himself of the rightful display of his glory for you. Jesus, the eternal word, became flesh and dwelt amongst us because he loved us. Before you were ever born, before the creation of this world, Jesus knew you and he loved you and he came and died for you. He even gave us an example. He himself, God in the flesh, didn't need baptism, was baptized. John the Baptist had enough sense. when He knew who Jesus was. When Jesus came and said, I want you to baptize me, he said, time out. It should be the other way around. We remember also that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It wasn't Christian baptism. A baptism of repentance. Of what sin was Jesus repenting? And Jesus responded, suffice it to fulfill all righteousness. Many suggest that Jesus was setting an example for those who would be his followers after him. I do not want you to submit to the ordinance of baptism because I say so. In fact, I don't want you to do that. Because you have to, even though you do. I want you to be baptized because you love Jesus. Because you put on Christ. Because he died for you. And your desire with all your heart is to identify with his death, burial, and resurrection. You want to die with Christ. You want to be buried with Him. And you want to rise clothed in Christ to walk in newness of life. You want people to know, Jesus loves me, this I know. And I love Him too. I'll die for Him. I'm honored to be called His child. I want you to know that I'm His follower. That's why I want you to be baptized. And so if you are here this morning and you've never been baptized, but you want to be, I want to strongly encourage you. Uh, There's a a sense in which I wish we were doing this this evening, but, but we needed time to talk to you. Going back to Barry Schwartz and the paradox of choice that I began my sermon with, he suggests in his book that too many choices lead to paralysis. This is one of the problems he's highlighting. (laughs) that while we like choice, when we have choices, many of us then don't make choice. Don't make the choice. If that's you regarding baptism, I want to encourage you lovingly. The biblical option, there, there are not a lot of choices. 
the biblical option is to follow our Lord's command and be baptized. So we have a baptism scheduled one week from today, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We'll get the address to you. And um, it's going to be outside and it's going to be in the river. Again, it'll be, it'll be safe. We're going to have a fellowship meal to follow. You'll be served. You don't even have to bring anything. You just have to show up. I hope that we have hundreds, thousand people there. It's safe. And there is nothing more important than observing people who say, I want you to know that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ with you. Four o'clock next Sunday, all that it remains for some of you is to share your testimony of faith with one of our pastors, one of our elders. You just say, I, I, w- I want to be baptized. Let us know. You can call the church office, whatever. Let us know. It is my prayer that we baptize many new believers next Sunday and that we baptize many who have decided today. It's not really optional. Would you do it? I encourage you so.